Today, we're still in Philemon for two more weeks, um, this morning and next week. And uh, we've been walking through this book of Philemon. And and Philemon, in a lot of ways, is where we see that this profound theology that Paul teaches, this this deep understanding of the gospel, the, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ meets the ground. It, it meets us in the day-to-day relationships and in, in the nitty and in the gritty. It's where the gospel enters into the mess. And so we see the same thing. We've seen that all along, that, all, that Paul has a very specific goal that he wants to encourage Philemon to do. He wants Philemon to forgive a slave who had wronged him and to set him free. And so Philemon, uh, Paul writes the letter of Philemon by trying to get him to change his mind and change how he thinks about him, to no longer think about him as a slave, but to think about him as a beloved brother. And so we've been seeing this this whole series of of Paul just writing and, and just trying to be careful and wise and yet still trying to push on Philemon in all the right ways. And so we've seen that up to this time. And and Paul ends this letter with these last three verses. And we're going to see that even these last three verses, the the, the things that are here and the names that he's going to mention are, are all serving this purpose of trying to convince Philemon to forgive Onesimus and also to set Onesimus free. So look with me, Philemon chapter uh, 1, because it's one chapter, verses 23 through 25. This is what God's Word says. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, one more time as we come before your word, we pray that you'd use it to shape us and conform us and mold us to your will. God, I pray that these things would not uh, land on our ear, on deaf ears, but that you would help us to hear them and apply them to our hearts. Pray these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. I want to encourage you as we are um, in the book of Philemon this morning to, to ask yourself to imagine what it would have looked like um, for the whole church, not just for Philemon, as, as they started to meditate and think through the implications of this book in the Bible. What would it have looked like, not just for Philemon, but for the average father uh, who is trying to forgive his kids, or for the two people in the church who just, they can't see eye to eye and they can't always get along? Um, uh, what would this look like, the, the things that we've learned about trying to uh, see one another in light of the gospel and trying to understand one another in light of the gospel and have our minds change? Um, what would this look like, not just for Philemon, but for the average person in the church? What would this look like? What would it look like for, for the average church member, the average person at church, to, to treat the others um, as, as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? To, to forgive as they've been forgiven? To, to be able to be, have a disposition of graciousness and of charity and of love towards one another, what, does, what would that look like for the average Christian? Not just for Philemon. We've kind of been thinking about what does this look like for Philemon who has a slave, and yet this book has implications for all Christians. What would this have looked like for that first church? See, I think the average person who is reading the letter to Philemon probably says, this sounds great. This is great. I know that I should be loving. I know that I should think about others as, as if they were in Christ, and yet that person just gets on my nerves. I know I shouldn't think this this way, but 
sometimes we're standing in line for the potluck and they just turn around and they just run their mouth and I just want to smack them. Or, or uh, consider what, what, what the average person, I, I think that they would have thought as they're reading the letter of Philemon, this sounds great, but how in the world am I supposed to act this way towards one another? And I think even in these three verses, the Apostle Paul is giving us, um, he's going to kind of give us one more encouragement about here is how we can live with each other. Here is the way that you, you have the, the power, the ability, the opening that you can treat each other this way. I think that's what, what the Apostle Paul is going. And maybe you've read the, the writings of the Apostle Paul. Maybe you've read Romans, you should, and Galatians and First and Second Corinthians, all, the, all those things. And you say, Matt, I've read his letters and they all kind of end in a similar way. They all kind of sound like this. And it's true. Paul often does use a formula as he's ending his letters. Not the same formula everyone else uses, but he uses a formula. But just because it's formulaic doesn't mean it's meaningless. Just because it's formulaic doesn't mean it's meaningless. That Paul is intentional and careful and thoughtful about the ways that he uh, writes his letters, even at the ending of his letters, and uh, this is no exception. And so we see here the community that Paul chose to do life with. And it's very significant that he says, as he's writing this letter, he says, not just I greet you, but so do Epaphras and Demas and Mark and Aristarchus and Luke. It's important because Paul wants to communicate that he himself is part of a community. He himself is, is part of a people that is sending greetings to an, another community. Uh, Paul is not recommend, he's not talking the talk and not walking the walk. Paul is part of a, a, a fellowship of believers, and we'll talk more about that as we're going on this morning. Paul has, has his boys around him. He has a band of brothers. He has a, a fellowship with other Christians. Paul, uh, there, there's just no, I said this, I think every week we've been in Philemon, but it's just true. Paul has no category, no category for a lone wolf Christian. There's, for Paul, it doesn't, the idea of a lone ranger Christian who's not in fellowship and community with other Christians, it just doesn't make sense to him. And we can see that even how he thought about his own life from these five names. And these five names are very interesting. Paul first mentions a man named Epaphras. A man named Epaphras. And we don't know all of the backstory of Epaphras, but we can make some good educated guesses just by Paul's, Paul's comments in the letter to Philemon. Epaphras was um, the, the original pastor of the church in Colossae. We see that in, uh, for example, Colossians 1.7. He was the original pastor. Uh, I agree with the commentator, Doug Moo, who says that he was probably um, came to faith under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And Paul sent him out to plant this church in Colossae. And then for whatever reason, we don't know if he needed a sabbatical, we don't, but it kind of seems like he was taken prisoner in kind of the same way that Paul was, and he ended up in the same place that Paul was. And, and so Paul mentions Epaphras. We know that even when Paul's writing these letters of Colossians and um, Philemon, that Epaphras is earnestly and zealously praying. In fact, in Colossians 4, uh, it says that Epaphras is, this word is agonizing over them in his prayers. He's just coming before God, and he's praying for the church in Colossae. And I want to draw attention to how Paul describes Epaphras. And he, Epaphras gets the most, the most uh, attention here because he's the most well-known to the church that Paul's writing to. But he, he calls Epaphras my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. 
Now, now these words, in Christ Jesus, we've seen them throughout the letter to Philemon. You can see them throughout all of Paul's writings. But really what Paul's communicating there is this idea of union with Christ. Uh, Or as we said earlier when we were walking through the prayer in Philemon, every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. And and so Paul is, even when he thinks of Epaphras, he's trying to communicate that he's in Christ, that he has this fellowship with Christ, this union with Christ, that in the words of Philippians 3, that he is found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own. That he is crucified with Christ, and the and in the words of Galatians, the life that he lives, he no longer lives, but the Son of God who gave himself for him lives in him. And the same union that Paul experiences in Christ, Epaphras also has. And then we see that he is, through this union, through this fellowship that he has with Christ, through the, the, the participation that he has with Christ, which Christ purchased for him on the cross, that he is his fellow prisoner. This is where it starts to get interesting. Because this word for fellow prisoner is not the same word that Paul used when he started the letter to Philemon. Philemon starts off, Paul says, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Not the same word as what Paul uses to describe Epaphras. But this word does occur in another one of Paul's writings. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. When Paul, quoting Psalm 68, says this. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, same word there, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Now, there's a lot in that passage that's going on, so we can't get into all, all of that. Um, but it's giving this image of, of a general. You see, in the ancient world, when a general would go and he would win a war, win a battle, he would go and he would return to his home city. We see a lot of this in the history of Rome. And he would march in a triumphal procession throughout the city. And there'd be a parade and people would be cheering. And, and behind the conquering general would march all the captives that he took in war. And the image that Paul is giving in Ephesians 4, and he uses the same word to describe Epaphras, he is of himself and of Epaphras who are being led by the conquering Christ through the city. And the conquering Christ gives those captives, those slaves to his people, to the church. It's a very humbling idea for the ministry that pastors and elders are, um, are essentially slaves that have been taken by Christ, and they've been won by Christ in the thick of the battle, and they've been distributed to his church. And Paul says, not only am I a prisoner for Christ, not only am I, have I been taken captive for Christ, not only do I belong to Christ, but so does Epaphras. He thinks about Epaphras in the same terms that he thinks of himself. But Epaphras is not the only person that he mentions. He also mentions uh, a name that probably is familiar to most of us, a, a man named Mark. Mark. And this is John Mark. Uh, John Mark and Paul have a very complicated history, if you know your Bible. Uh, the, apostle, uh, Paul, uh, the apostle Peter has an early association with Mark before even Paul does. Uh, if, if you read early in the book of Acts, Peter is taken prisoner and God opens up the prison and Peter escapes the prison and he goes and he goes to, a, there's a prayer meeting at a house and it's at John Mark's parents' house. 
So we're given to think that John Mark is probably young at that time, and, and the Apostle Peter knows his parents. They have a personal relationship. Peter's kind of a friend of the family. And, and so Peter and, uh, Peter and John Mark have this early association. Most people think that the gospel that P, uh, Mark would, would later write um, is kind of based on Peter's account and Peter's testimony. So there's this early association with them. But John Mark is best known because he's the cousin of another man named Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas are buddies. And so Paul and Barnabas, uh, they set out on their first missionary journey together. They're going to preach the gospel, the good news of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And they're going to preach it, and they preach it on Cyprus. And something happens. We don't know all the details. We do have some clues. Um, And when Paul and Barnabas leave Cyprus to go to the mainland, uh, John Mark parts ways. And John Mark turns back, and he returns And the word that's used later to describe his um, departing from from, uh, Paul and Barnabas is actually the word apostasy. So I I do not think it's a stretch of of what the Bible tells us to think that for a time, John Mark actually turned away from the gospel. He lost his faith. He turned back. He, he, He abandoned ship. And yet, later on, Barnabas and Barnabas and John Mark are reconciled. It's after the Jerusalem Council, after Paul and Barnabas meet up and hobnob with all the elders in Jerusalem. They write this letter, really important letter. And after that, Paul and Barnabas decide they're going to go out and they're going to continue their mission of preaching the gospel. And Barnabas says, hey, can we take along our buddy John Mark? And Paul says, I don't know about that, Paul. Paul says, um, and Jesus even says in the Gospel of Luke that the one who turns back from the harvest is not fit for the kingdom of God. He says, are you sure you want to bring him back? And there's this fight that breaks out. I don't think this fight is because Paul's holding on to a grudge. I don't think this fight is because Paul refuses to forgive him. I think this, this is over a matter of trust. Can, can we trust John Mark yet? And Barnabas says, yes. And Paul says, I'm not there yet. And, and so they, it was very bitter and they parted ways. And, and yet, it's not too long after that, Paul writes the letter to, to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians. Paul speaks about Barnabas in very glowing terms at that point. So already there's kind of this, this I think, this kind of return to reconciliation. And by the time of the writing to, of the letter to the Colossians, that Barnabas has apparently gone and reconciled with Paul while Paul's in prison in Rome. And Paul has forgiven him. He's seen that he hasn't turned back and he's, he's regained his faith and he's come back to the Lord and Paul forgives him. And this incident was well known among all the churches. The church in Colossae had actually heard of John Mark. We see that in Colossians 4. And Paul says, if John Mark comes to you, welcome him in. Receive him in. And actually, in Paul's second imprisonment, the one where Paul doesn't get to leave, not on this earth anyways, he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. And he says to to Timothy, find John Mark, for he is useful to me. And that word useful is the same word that Paul uses to describe Onesimus. No longer is useless, but now is useful. Paul doesn't just walk the walk, he Paul doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. What Paul is encouraging Philemon to do with Onesimus, he does the same thing. Forgive those who have wronged you and forgive those who hurt you and and be reconciled to them. And and he's not 
again, there's, there's a complicated history there, and yet Paul is being restored and reconciled to John Mark. We also see the, the name Aristarchus. Aristarchus does not get enough airtime in, in uh, preaching. He's such a fascinating character. He's, he's a Macedonian Jew. So Macedonia is a country just north of, of um, Greece. And uh, that's where the country from which Alexander the Great came and ruled over Macedonia. So fascinating. And he's a Jew who's from Macedonia, but he grew up in Thessaly, which was the sister, back in the day, it was the sister kingdom to Macedonia. And yet Alexander the Great ruled over it. All this nerd history I could go into. Anyways. Aristarchus is living in Thessalonica when the Apostle Paul travels through shortly after he gets kicked out of Philippi. And um, apparently he comes to faith there. And from that moment on, almost the rest of Paul's life, he is side by side with him. He, he never leaves him. It's so fascinating that even when Paul, even when Paul goes to Ephesus, and uh, he's with Paul throughout his whole ministry in Ephesus. And there's, if you remember the, uh, the story in Ephesus, there's this giant riot. And, and they're going to uh, stone, they're looking for Paul to stone him. They can't find Paul, so they just take the next best thing, who's Aristarchus. And there's 30,000 Ephesians around there, and they're going to stone him. And Paul gets off scot-free, and poor Aristarchus. Anyways, somehow Aristarchus escapes from that. And he goes with Paul to Jerusalem. And he's side by side with him throughout his Jerusalem imprisonment. And even as Paul is going from Jerusalem to Rome, Aristarchus stakes by his side. And he's with him. It's fascinating. He, he in so many ways uh, uh, has this, uh, the, embodies the idea of um, the Proverbs that there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Aristarchus just loves Paul, and he's just like a little puppy dog. He just wants to be by him and encourage him and lift him up, and he doesn't abandon him. He's faithful, he's dependable, and he doesn't turn tail and run. And then we come to the name Demas. And Demas is an interesting character. We, we see Demas' name mentioned three times. We don't know where he's from. Um, Demas was... Um, was apparently with Paul in his imprisonment in Rome. And all of these characters are mentioned in the letter to the Colossians, and yet the later Demas will be mentioned in the book of 2 Timothy. And he is one who departed from Paul because he is, quote-unquote, in love with this present age. And I think even in Colossians, it's interesting, Paul's starting to have doubts about Demas. Because in Colossians 4, Paul is going into all this detail about, he's like, and Luke is great, and Aristarchus is great, and John Mark is great, and then there's Demas. And anyways, back to what I was saying. And so even when you see in Colossians that Demas is, but, but, but there's just something that's different about him. Paul's not quite sure of him. He's by his side. And yet, there's just something that doesn't set right with him about Demas, even in Colossians. And, and yet notice this that despite those doubts which I think Paul had about him, Paul is still giving him the benefit of the doubt. He's still inviting him in. He's still associating with him. He's still welcoming him in. He's still working with him. He's still walking with him. He's not giving up on him. We don't know the end of Demas' story. We're just told that he leaves Paul in Paul's imprisonment. We don't know exactly if he just got afraid of death or or something happened, if he's snared in some sin. We don't know, but the New Testament holds out hope that that was not the end of Demas' story. 
And we don't, we don't know. Maybe Demas did come back to the Lord. Maybe Demas did come back to faith. We can only hope and pray. And then there's Luke. Luke, who would write the, the gospel of Luke. And, and Luke is a doctor. He's called the beloved doctor in Colossians. He is, I think he is from the city of Philippi, or he spent a lot of time in the city of Philippi. Because the city of Philippi had a giant medical school back in the day. It was kind of a hub for, for medicine back in the day in the city of Philippi. And shortly after Luke joins Paul's party in Acts, um, Paul goes to Philippi. He crosses over the, the, the Bosphorus River and goes into Philippi. Short, almost immediately after Paul joins Luke. And I think Luke was trying to encourage Paul, no, Philippi needs the gospel, and, and Paul wasn't having it, and then he got this dream about the man from Macedonia, uh, and he's like, okay, I guess we need to go. And so I, I think there's something along those lines, but Luke is with Paul, and, and he's with Paul all the way up until his imprisonment in Jerusalem, just like Aristarchus. He's dependable, he's faithful, he's not leaving him in the lurch, he's not abandoning him, and he's with him the whole time. And then there's a period of time for, uh, for the time that Paul is in imprisonment in Jerusalem where Luke is actually not with Paul. We know that just the way he uses pronouns and, and the acts. And I think it's during that time that Luke wrote his gospel. Uh, I think he wrote his gospel during that time uh, as, he, as Paul's in imprisonment in Jerusalem. But as soon as Paul leaves Jerusalem to go to Rome, Paul is, or Luke is with him. We know that as Paul is standing trial for his faith in his second imprisonment, Luke alone was with him, that Luke did not turn tail and run. Luke didn't abandon him. Now, it's interesting, Paul calls all of these brothers his quote-unquote co-workers. And usually this word co-worker refers to, um, it's a formal term for someone who's in, in the ministry with him. And so I think what Paul is saying is that all these brothers are pastors. They're all, they're all friends who've potentially been ordained and they're serving in the church. And he's putting them up on a pedestal. And he's saying this community that we have, this fellowship and this friendship, this, this graciousness that we give towards one another, this, uh, this is what I want you to have, Philemon. He's putting them forth as an example. He's, he's trying to hold them up and, and say, look at these men. These are men that are worthy of emulation. They're, they're worthy of imitation. You should strive to be like this. You should forgive like we've forgiven Mark. And you should bear with them like we're bearing with Demas. And you should uh, be dependable like Aristarchus is dependable. You, 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 should, you, you should come alongside them. And maybe if you're reading this, you think, oh, that sounds really good, but that is really hard. Because it is. Because most of us in this room are not super Christians. Maybe we just had somebody that we knew that they were this close to heaven, but for the rest of us, we still know that there is seething underneath the surface, maybe some bitterness and some insecurity and some anxiety. And, and we think when we hear example lists like this and we, we hear of people who are so good, it just makes us feel worse about ourselves because we know that we're not. Which is why Paul very intentionally closes with verse 25. Here's how Paul lived together with his brothers. And here's how Paul wants Philemon to live with Onesimus. And here's how Paul wants us to live with each other. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
And maybe as you're listening to this, if you were here when we first started Philemon, that sounds familiar because it's very similar to what Paul says up in verse 3, where he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul closes in a very similar way how he opened the gospel or opened the letter to Philemon because it all comes back to this, th- these ideas that he even started the letter with. So real fast, we're just going to do a quick review of some of what we talked about back in the first uh, sermon on Philemon. When Paul says, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, Paul is making a... Perf- we, we hear that, we read that, and we just kind of maybe read over it. But we should pause and think about the implication of what Paul is saying. As a first century Jew, as someone who memorized the, the Shema in the Old Testament, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And we know elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 8, 4, that Paul inserted, he viewed Jesus Christ within the Shema. That, he, that when he thought of the, the oneness of God, there's one God, he, he couldn't go back before the Damascus road. He couldn't go back before seeing the ascended Christ. And so when Paul says the Lord Jesus Christ, he's very intentionally saying that Yahweh has made himself known to us in the person of Christ. That, that God Almighty, the one God, the covenant God of the people of Israel, has made himself known to us in Christ. And, and therefore, any time that God is going to, to meet us is going to be through Christ. And then he says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and we, we talked about how not only does Paul insert the, the Jesus into the, the Trinity, into the triune name, but even this classic blessing from the Old Testament in Numbers 4. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you and give you peace. That Paul sees that happening through the face of Christ. What we said when we started the book of Philemon, that the grace of God always has a face, and that's the face of Jesus. And so when Paul is is ending this letter to Philemon, he is saying this does not happen apart from Christ apart from coming to experience and to deeply know your Savior. This community that I'm holding up to you, this, this, this idea, this perfect life together that I want you to emulate and I want you to be like and I want you to live, it will not happen if you sever yourself from the vine. It will not happen apart from fellowship with Christ We cannot have fellowship with one another if we aren't sharing in Christ first. This is the sharing that comes from our faith, that Christ is the the key to Christian community. And Paul, Paul is trying to communicate, even as he's ending this letter, even as he's putting up his closest friends as an example for the community that he wants to see in the church, he's saying, and yet you can't do that without the grace of God. You can't do that without the kindness and the mercy and the charity of our Savior. That the only way that you and I can keep the commands, keep the law, keep the imperatives of Scripture and follow the examples that Scripture gives us is if we're relying on the grace of God in the face of Christ every single day. And that happens through the ministry of the Spirit. Paul says, be with your spirit. Now, in proper English... In proper English, we have one word, you or your, for plural and singular. Where I grew up, we said y'all for singular and all y'all for plural. <laughs> Not a joke. <laughs> I could get my dad on the phone. That's, yeah. 
But apparently, supposedly, in the grammar textbooks, there's only one word for your in English, all right? So we kind of have to infer, is he talked singular or plural? Well, this, in the Greek, they actually have different words for singular and plural. And this word your in verse 25 is, is plural. So he's, he kind of turns to the whole church here. He says, be with your spirit as a church. But then this word spirit is singular. He doesn't say spirits. Your, plural, spirit. So who's this, what is the spirit that binds the church together by the grace of God? Well, I think it's the Holy Spirit. I think it's the Holy Spirit. The, spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one who, who binds the church together, who, who makes them to fee, see the face of Christ. And so Paul is saying that the grace of God through the Spirit of Christ is what will enable you to obey this and have this kind of charity and love and communion and fellowship with one another. The only way that, that, that this happens, the only way that we can have true fellowship, the only way that we can do this is if we are walking with Christ through the Spirit day by day. We will only have true fellowship with one another if we have fellowship with Christ first. We will only have fellowship. We will only live together like Christ if we are depending on Christ day by day and step by step. So let me, let me give this a couple of applications. Not, not 11 or 12 this week. Don't worry. Um, yeah, I'll just go one up above that. Um, a couple of applications to end our time together. Uh, if we are going to have fellowship with each other, fellowship with, with each other in a church and, and community together, well, it means we have to have community with Christ. The, the key to Christian community, the key to Christian fellowship, the, the key to being able to be gracious and charitable and kind and forgiving and, and patient with one another if anyone has faults is if we are walking day by day with Christ. Which means, number two, that Christ is the Lord of the church. This is Christ's church first and foremost. Uh, many of you know that when I was pastoring my last church, uh, the first couple years was extremely difficult and pastored through a church split. And here's how that split started. I, I was meeting with someone and we were addressing, addressing some behavior and some problems. And um, this person, uh, I, I turned to this person and I said, look, I know you have a lot of really high expectations for me and for this church, and you really want this church to be um, something, and I just want you to know it's never going to be that. And this person turned and said, no, no, you will one day. I said, no, no, you don't understand. We're not even going to try to that be that because this is Christ's church, not yours. Now, that sounds harsh, but that better not be controversial in this place because this is Christ's church first and foremost. Our opinions, our preferences, they all matter. Our, our, our views, they, they matter. We want to hear them, but ultimately we want to submit them to the Lord of the church because His way is better than ours. And He is king on the throne, and He is the one who's ruling and reigning. And this is His body, His people that He bought with His own blood. This is not Matt's church. This is, not any, this is Christ's church first and foremost. Which means number three. Number three, that we all, like Epaphras, need to zealously and earnestly pray that God would make us this kind of people. If it's Christ's church, if it's Christ's people, if it's, if it's the Lord's body, then we need to 
earnestly and zealously pray that God would work in such a way in our church that we would be gracious and that we would grow, that we would be those who reflect the gospel to one another, that we would forgive as we are forgiven. We all need to pray earnestly to the Lord of the church that he would work marvelously among us and give us an overabundance of grace that we would be quick to be patient with one another's shortcomings and that we would be quick to forgive and quick to bear with one another. That's the, that's the only way that this happens is if we are earnestly and zealously and eagerly in prayer for one another and prayer that Christ would work among this place, that we would truly be those who reflect the gospel to one another. That's number three. Number four. If we're going to have fellowship with Christ, we must have fellowship with one another. If we're going to have fellowship with Christ, we must have fellowship with one another. It's like we've been saying every single week, Paul just doesn't have a category for a lone wolf Christian. Paul doesn't have a category for a lone ranger Christian. That to be a Christian is to be part of the body. To be a hand is to be attached to the arm, right? If you and I are members of Christ, if we're in Christ, we're united to Christ, we're united to one another. We're, We're part of the body. Number five, I don't know. I'm not good at counting. Whatever the next number is. Kindergarten was a long time ago. (laughs) Um, We need to be a place where people like John Mark, fallen away from the faith, who've fallen into serious sin, and they repent, we need to be a place that is welcoming to them and kind to them. Even maybe some people who've hurt us deeply. We We want to be a place that is open and warm towards those who have fallen away from the faith for a time. We need to be like Paul. I'm not saying that we reward trust immediately. That's different than forgiving and being welcoming. But we need to be a place for those who have fallen, to be a place that is welcoming to them. We also, whatever the next number is, need to be a place where we hope and make space for those like Demas, who don't quite set right with us, who earthly wisdom would tell us there's just something off, there's something going to happen with this person. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying we're foolish. I'm just saying that we want to assume the best about people, and we just need to know that this side of eternity, the book is not closed on any of us. And that those who have, who, who have, there's just something about them that just doesn't quite set right with us, we need to make space for them. Be kind and welcoming and open to them. And, and pray and hope that our assumptions are off and long for, the, for them to find community and fellowship with us and with Christ. We, we also need to be a place where we can, like, like Epaphras and like Aristarchus and like Luke, be dependable and faithful to, towards one another. We need to be a place where, where, where others know that they can count on us. They know that when they're going through something, that we're there. That we're for them. We're not against them. We're not hoping the worst for them. That we want to do everything we can in our power to see them succeed. We, we, we want to be a place where, where 
where if there are those who are uh, hurt or, or, or they're cast out or they just don't have the breath to go on today, that they know that we will be with them. That we're weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. We need to be a place where, where those who are hurt know that we are alongside them, that we are coming together. Church, just like I wanted you to imagine what it would have looked like in the average life of that church if they would have taken the letter to Philemon seriously. So I want us to imagine what it would be like if this letter to Philemon became part of the DNA of this body. (laughs) Siri might not understand, but the Lord does. I want us to imagine what would it be like what would it be like if we were a, a, a body that this idea of being gracious and charitable and, and eager to look past one another's faults became something that we became known for? If when someone new came into our church that they were just put off by how much we love each other. There was just something that they just thought, that person, I know that there was something on my face and they didn't, they didn't even look like they noticed it. They just loved me regardless. We want to be a place that is welcome. Imagine what it would look like. Imagine how our relationships could grow in depth and in breadth if you and I embraced this and put, took this to heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, I thank you that this does not happen apart from your grace. I thank you that you are the Lord of this church and every church. I thank you that you are a good and kind and gracious and merciful Lord. I thank you that you are a God who is reigning and ruling and sovereign over all. God, we we pray and we long and we agonize over this that we might be quick to overlook one another's faults and quick to forgive that we would be marked by charity and love and faithfulness and friendship. That we wouldn't be those who are quick to judge one another, but that we would be those who are quick, quick to show mercy and tenderness and affection. God, we know that you've spoken these things in your word, and now we earnestly ask you to do them in your church. We pray these things in the name of your Son and by your Spirit. Amen.